Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Previously on Hong Kong on the Brink, we've asked the question, will Beijing use force? I'm Jude Blanchett, and in today's episode, I sit down with Joel Withno to discuss what that force could look like if China's People's Armed Police is behind it. Joel is a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs at National Defense University, and he's also the author of an excellent report called China's Other Army, The People's Armed Police in the Era of Reform. Joel, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jude. Good to be here. Before we dive into the discussion of the People's Armed Police and, and what an intervention may or may not look like, just to set the scene here, over the past couple of days, we've seen rhetoric from both Beijing and some comments from Carrie Lam down in Hong Kong. Both sides are saying essentially Hong Kong is, is in control of Carrie Lam. Gung Shuang said that Beijing has full confidence in Carrie Lam to handle the situation. And she, in turn, at a press conference yesterday, came out and said that her role as chief executive is to essentially hold down the fort and that they're looking for ways to diffuse tensions. And yet, over the weekend, we saw a significant escalation of tactics by both the demonstrators and the police. We saw the use of Molotov cocktails by some of the protesters. We saw the police now pull their weapons. It seems that despite comments from Beijing and, and Hong Kong, that the situation is, is getting worse. And so we return to the question that we discussed in our first podcast, which is, What's Beijing going to do? And at the core of that is speculation about something I think is is little understood by most of us, which is the, the People's Armed Police. So I'll just start with a very, very simple question here, Joel, which is, what is the People's Armed Police? Right. So the People's Armed Police is one of three main components of the Chinese armed forces. Uh, so first is the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA. So that's the active duty military. Second are the reserves. And third is the People's Armed Police. And so what the PAP is, is a paramilitary force. What they do is maintain internal security. Yeah, in China. So if there are major protests, if there are mass incidents, even if there are natural disasters and things of this sort, the first line of defense for Beijing is the People's Armed Police. So these are the guys who, if you go to China and you see a demonstration, are sitting there parked in APCs, armored personnel carriers. They have uh, machine guns, they have helmets and other kind of military-like equipment. They don't really go and fight wars. That's not their job. That's the PLA's job. The PAP is the first line of defense for the Chinese Communist Party to maintain control, if you will, uh, in light of domestic challenges and social stability challenges. So the PAP also has a number of other functions. So they assist 
the PLA. For instance, if there was a war, the PAP would be uh, doing things within China to help fight the war. So they would be maintaining the roads. They would be essentially a kind of reserve force uh, the PLA could lean on so that the PLA could do things overseas. So their role is basically domestic. So over the years, they've done a lot of things domestically in terms of putting down protests, uh, and some of those uh, have involved the use of violence. In fact, uh, use of lethal uh, force against protesters in some cases. So when we have the PAP on the scenes for outside observers like us, it immediately raises the question of what are they going to do? Are they going to use force? And so can you tell me a little bit about the origins of the PAP? I understand they date back from, from the early 80s. Has the mission always been consistent or have they seen an evolution in terms of what their responsibilities are? And then secondly, I know that over the past couple of years, there's been a pretty significant restructuring of the PAP. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that means in terms of their, their mission and in terms of their position within uh, China's internal security? Right. So the PAP's origins actually go back to the 1920s. When the Chinese Communist Party was established, they needed a paramilitary wing basically to grow and defend their authority within the country. Of course, the PRC was established in 1949, but they had a paramilitary wing. These were the guys that were supporting them uh, internally. And that just went through the Cold War, went through the Cultural Revolution. They've always had an organization like this. The modern People's Armed Police was set up in the early 1980s under Deng Xiaoping. To be honest, in the early days, uh, this was not a very powerful force. It was actually a quite weak force. And what it was for Deng Xiaoping was a bit of a dumping ground for PLA. So excess uh, PLA guys who were no longer needed to fight wars, they were hived off and they became a PAP. So it was bureaucratically convenient uh, to have this organization to soak up excess personnel. They were not very uh, modern. They were not really ready. Their level of readiness was very low at that period of time. And so in 1989, when the Tiananmen Square crisis happened, the PAP was completely ineffectual. You know, as I said earlier, they were the first line of defense, but they were a very weak first line. And so very quickly, Beijing decided that you had to send in the PLA. And so what happened over the course of the 1990s and the 2000s was that the PAP was repeatedly reorganized, modernized, its funding increased, its training improved so that these guys could do a better job, essentially putting down domestic discontent. And that was coupled with the rise in the 1990s and the 2000s of what China calls mass incidents. And so social protests, grievances that were in some cases spinning out of control at the local level. And so you had a demand for paramilitary troops to address these problems, but also an increasingly capable PAP that was able to meet that demand. Uh, and so that's kind of where we ended up here in the 2010s. And then so going to the reforms, you know, so Xi Jinping comes to power as general secretary in, in 2012 and looking across the full breadth of his time in office so far, we've seen that there's really been no corner of the political or security or military system which hasn't been touched. And I understand this includes the PAP. So what happened in terms of restructuring of the PAP? And crucially, is this another power grab by Xi Jinping or is there some other rationale behind centralizing PAP under his command? Right. So Xi Jinping comes in in November 2012 as chairman of the Central Military Commission. So he's the leader of the party, but also the boss of the military. One of the things that he does is to reorganize the People's Liberation Army. And so that's gotten a lot of attention. It's a very ambitious and wide ranging set of organizational 
reforms. Within his reform schedule or agenda, the People's Armed Police has also been affected. So one of the things that he has done is to change the command and control relationships of the PAP. So prior to Xi coming in, the PAP was under this oddity called a dual leadership system, where they reported on one hand to the civilians, so the state council, Ministry of Public Security, but then also in some respects to the Central Military Commission. So one of the things that Xi Jinping did was to clarify the chain of command so that they report only to the military. Now it's accurate to call the PAP not a law enforcement organization, but a military organization because they no longer report to the police. And just to clarify, when we say the military, maybe it's worth unpacking a little bit that when we're talking about the Chinese military, we're talking about a party army versus a national army. Mm, Absolutely. So, so, So can you just describe a little bit what that means? So when the PAP comes over, under the Central Military Commission. That's the Central Military Commission of the Communist Party rather than the Chinese government or the Chinese state. It's a point that's sometimes lost. So unlike the U.S. military, the U.S. military is a national army. You know, They swear allegiance to a constitution. In China, the PLA officers swear allegiance not to the nation, but to the Chinese Communist Party. And they actually swear an oath. And so that's the same in the People's Armed Police as well. Their main mission in life is pursuing the goals, the agendas of the CCP. And for the PAP, they they have a very special goal, which is maintaining the security of the CCP within China. Can you talk a little bit about what level of direct control Xi Jinping as the head of the Central Military Commission has over the PAP? Sometimes I get the sense it's it's difficult to understand when power is centralized under Xi Jinping. Is it under his office or are we actually talking about an explicit personal control over the PAP? Can he essentially willy-nilly decide to deploy them or is this more an institutionalized control under the office of chairman of the Central Military Commission? It's an institutionalized control. So Xi Jinping has centralized his power in a lot of different ways since he's come into office uh, over different parts of the party state. Within the armed forces, whether it's the PLA or the PAP, he's made it very clear that he's number one, that all the main decisions rest with him. So the buck stops there, if you will. That's true of the active military and the PAP as well. So if there's a crisis, could he call them out? He could call them out. And that's a big shift. That's a big shift for the PAP because before she came into office, the system was set up so that local officials and provincial officials could call these guys out. So if there was a crisis in the street in a village or a township or a county, the local officials there within the party didn't need approval uh, from Beijing. They could call these guys out. And that led to a lot of problems because force you know, was called out in some cases unnecessarily. So they maybe didn't need to rely on paramilitary troops, but they called them out anyway. And they weren't very effectively controlled. And so that led to some very unfortunate incidents where force was used against them. And so one of the things that Xi Jinping realized was that that was very bad for the party when excessive force is used against civilians. Even in China's media environment, these stories get out. And so he wants to make sure that paramilitary troops are called out only when they're really needed and that they don't just automatically resort to violence in the first instance of a protest. And so that's one of the things that he's done. So this isn't just about Xi wanting power because he's, you know, a strong man or something like that. It's because he realized there was a problem and that these guys had been misabused and called out. And one of the famous instances of that was in 2012 during the Bo Xi Lai incident. Bo Xi Lai, who was the party secretary in Chongqing, he had a power base. 
base. And part of his power base was the PAP. And the PAP was called out. And in mm. fact, Bo Xilai used the PAP to go apprehend Wang Lijun when Wang absconded to the U.S. consulate. Wang Lijun, who was the head of the police there in the capo for Bo Xilai before they had a split. Right, exactly. And so Xi Jinping looks at these sorts of incidents and says, you know, these guys are developing power bases and they're misusing these assets. And I can't let that happen because it's bad for me. It's bad for the party. Now, before we turn to Hong Kong, just one final question here as context. Is there any precedence for the PAP operating in an environment similar to Hong Kong? Are they doing anything overseas? Of course, Hong Kong is a special administrative region of China, but nonetheless, we're, we're thinking of this as a sort of external deployment of the PAP. Has that happened before? And if that has happened, what does that experience tell us? The PAP has been deployed internationally. There are PAP uh, soldiers out in UN peacekeeping operations. The PAP also now is present in Central Asia. Specifically, they reportedly have a base that they've set up inside Tajikistan, and they're actually conducting counterterrorism patrols out there. They're developing counterterrorism partnerships with similar organizations in different countries. Those aren't very good parallels for Hong Kong, though, because those deployments have what you would call host country consent. Those are places where they're wanted. So the better parallels, I think, are within China. So local protests and even larger, you know, protests that have kind of gotten out of control and the PAP has been called in. And so that's more like what could happen in Hong Kong. And what does that experience tell us in terms of the post-reform era uh, PAP? So over the past couple of years now under more streamlined control of Xi Jinping, how have we seen them behave when they're called into some of these contentious eras? I think the jury's still out on that because what we're talking about are changes that have taken place within about the last a year and a half. And my sense is that the guidelines for using force are still a little bit unclear, even within the Chinese system. The other thing worth keeping in mind is that in China itself, local police forces are becoming more robust. And so really the first line of defense for small scale incidents and protests is no longer the PAP. It's really local police who now, for instance, they're able to carry guns, which they weren't beforehand. So if there's any kind of precedent, it's probably PAP patrols and deployments in Xinjiang where they have a massive presence. They're on every you know, street corner, that kind of thing. And they're in a very hostile environment. And that's something that's been continuous since about 2008 when the pre-Olympic riots you know, erupted and they've just been there and redoubled their presence out there. Turning to Hong Kong, we had the footage which emerged, what was that, two weeks ago in Shenzhen in a, in a sports stadium. Foreign journalists were allowed some visual, some footage of, of PAP amassing in these uh, stadiums. The jury's out of whether that was a demonstration for foreign capitals, for people in Hong Kong, for the Hong Kong government to show that Beijing certainly had the wherewithal and, and to intervene. How did you interpret that when you saw that footage come out? Did that look like bark or did that look like a credible threat? I think it's a mix of two things. First of all, this is a kind of signaling. And, you know, you can say that it's signaling because it was broadcast pretty extensively in Chinese media. If they had not wanted that to send a message, they wouldn't have uh, publicized it. Uh, so the location, uh, where it took place, the types of personnel that were involved, the types of training that they were doing, which was anti-riot related. Related. And the fact that it was broadcast, it sent a kind of message to Hong Kong that, you know, if this really goes south, we have the capability, we can intervene if we want to. The second thing going on, I think, is that this was actual training. And so, you know, Hong Kong is a new environment. The PAP does not operate there. This would be something new. The uh, Hong Kong protesters are using new tactics and Chinese are observing that. They can sense what's going on and they're having to adjust their own training. And so this is real training to deal with protesters. Importantly, without 
resorting to deadly violence. Mm -hmm. And so using non-lethal force to counteract protesters, I think, is something that they're actually focusing on. The way we've been describing this, or, or at least it's been described in the media, is it's almost like a binary choice. Either Beijing, quote unquote, sends in the PAP or they don't. Of course, there's a, a spectrum of options that Beijing has. And one of those could be, as you just mentioned, simply standing up or giving more leeway to the local police, or it could be a, a mixture of the two of, of PAP playing some sort of supporting role. When you think through what a scenario for intervention may look like, and again, if we just imagine for a moment, we're on the same trend line we are now between protesters and the police and an intransigent Hong Kong government. So it just continues to spiral and get worse and worse. And Beijing feels compelled to take some sort of action. What to you is the most realistic scenario, knowing what you know about the limitations of the PAP? How do you think this might play out? Well, I think for the time being, Beijing is likely to try to rely on the Hong Kong police. And the reason is that the Hong Kong police are a very potent law enforcement organization. They're large. They understand the terrain. They understand the language, the uh, the tactics of the protesters. They have a lot of experience. And so for the time being, I think China's preferred method is to use their agents, if you will, in Hong Kong to do the dirty work, to get into the media. So what could actually prompt Beijing to intervene, whether it's PAP, whether it's even PL? I think there are a couple of conditions. Number one is if the situation really deteriorates in Hong Kong and it looks like the police uh, will be completely outmatched by the protesters. That hasn't happened so far. There have been demonstrations. Some of the infrastructure has been temporarily shut down. But the Hong Kong police has been holding their own for now. So if that uh, is no longer true, China may feel more pressure to act. The second thing is if the protests begin to spill over somehow into the mainland, because I think that's really China's red line, is if the these pro-democracy protests catch on, they catch fire, they gain supporters in the mainland, which also hasn't happened yet. But if there is evidence of that, uh, whether it's in Beijing, whether it's in Guangzhou or Guangdong province writ large, I think you know that could stimulate more of a massive type of response from, from China. I know this is a little bit outside of your research area, but in terms of actions that, let's say, the United States government could have some effect in the period leading up to possible intervention or even after the fact. Do you have any thoughts on where the United States could or should be standing in terms of possible use of force? Well, I think the U.S. government needs to make clear that any uh, military crackdown in Hong Kong from Beijing would immediately draw condemnation both from Washington and from the U.S. allies and partners in the region. I think that's uh, number one. This isn't an issue we should avoid. It's something we should talk about. I don't think it would be credible to suggest that the U.S. would somehow intervene. I don't think anyone's talking about that, and it just simply wouldn't work. What the U.S. can do is to ramp up the stakes for Beijing on the international stage. Saying that an intervention would be condemned, that's number one. And also calling this for what it would be, which would be a military intervention. So rejecting China's likely narrative that this would be a law enforcement action and saying, no, the PAP reports to the Central Military Commission only as part of the armed forces, and the use of these sorts of assets is a military operation, clearly. But then finally, it's also important, I think, to stay very close with Hong Kong authorities because the U.S. has very good relations with the Special Administrative Region. And staying very close uh, with the Hong Kong police, for instance, not alienating these forces, which I think have actually been our partners uh, for years years. I think that's also uh, important. If you and I were sitting down three months from now, where do you think things stand? Do you think we've seen petering out of the movement? Do you think we've seen movement by Beijing to intervene? 
you know, bets are always risky with these sorts of uh, incidents, which can be rapidly uh, changing and evolving. My sense from today's perspective is that China is very unlikely to intervene. Number one, because the international cost would be high. Uh, this would be really a game changer, unprecedented. And number two, because even though there is centralized command and control, you can't rule out the possibility of some kind of an inadvertent incident. So a shooting, some sort of incident that spins out of control. And to go back to 1989 in Tiananmen, what was worse from Beijing's perspective was international condemnation and the media, the optics. So we all remember Tank Man, you know, the famous photo. But think about it today. In Hong Kong, everyone has a smartphone. Everyone would be snapping pictures of every single thing the PAP does. And so you could not only have one Tank Man, you could have hundreds of Tank Men and Women who are unarmed civilians standing up in front of these heavily armed Chinese troops. And that would be terrible optics from Chinese point of view. It would undercut Chinese narrative that they are just simply protecting their own interests, it would make them look like an aggressor. So I don't see uh, China easily intervening. I think that's their last option, something they would least prefer to do. But who knows? History changes often, and I think we just have to prepare for the worst. Joel, thank you very much. And I'd like to again recommend that folks go out and read Joel's excellent report, which is available on the National Defense University website. It's called China's Other Army, the People's Armed Police in an Era of Reform. Thanks, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.